on the Mark Petrona Show. We have Tom Korski on the line. Tom is managing editor of Black Locks Reporter, Minding Ottawa's Business. And uh, you can check it out today at blacklocks.ca. Welcome once again, Tom. Thank you, Mark. More police contradict feds. Say it ain't so. Wow, a third law enforcement executive, former Ottawa police chief Peter Slowly, has denied advising cabinet to use the emergency powers against the Freedom Convoy. You'll remember that was one of the main uh, reasons given by uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, who said on February the 28th, we had to invoke the Emergencies Act, and we did so on the basis of nonpartisan professional advice from law enforcement. Well, a lot of these law enforcement agencies and executives, Tom, as you've pointed out in your story, are distancing themselves from the idea that somehow they had any, offered any request, you know, on the part of cabinet to, to impose uh, the Emergencies Act. What's going on here? Oh, three strikes, Mark. Uh, so this, this is the former chief in Ottawa, the current chief in Ottawa, and the current commissioner of the RCMP have all been asked in committee, were you the one who uh, purportedly advised cabinet to invoke the Emergencies Act against these political protesters? And all three have said absolutely unequivocally, of course not. No, it wasn't me. The implication is, that was an accurate quote you just gave from uh, Public Safety Minister Mendicino. The implication is Mendicino lied. I'm sorry, there's no way to make that pretty. The implication is, we counted 11 times. The Public Safety Minister said, look at my hands were tied, the police were stymied by these clever protesters, the police advised us to invoke the Emergencies Act. And it's not true. Three police chiefs and the RCMP commissioner included have said it it didn't happen. I was in all the meetings. We never did it. And this can only mean if Mendicino doesn't come up with a cop really fast who says it was me, and I don't know who that would be at this point, the implication is it was the other way around. It was the politician who told the police, I need you to go after these people who are getting on my nerves. That's a bad place in a G7 country, and that's where they're going, Mark. And they're all scrambling now. Uh, Thanks to, I mean, and and thankfully, the people who wrote the Emergencies Act way back when, uh, it was the 1980s, they in, included, I suppose, this stipulation that there be some kind of inquiry afterwards. Um, that, that, and so under, under the scrutiny, I suppose, they're now scrambling and pointing fingers and saying, well, they told us, and no, we didn't, and what next? I mean, the credibility here by Mr. Mendicino is, is crumbling fast. I mean, uh, Oh, Mendicino, absolutely. No, he's got a lot to answer for, and unfortunately he's not very good at the, at the blame game. And so he's carrying this. There are other members in cabinet who are also very enthusiastic about hammering that protest. But Mendicino's carrying it now. You're absolutely right. Perrin Beatty wrote this Emergencies Act a long time ago, 1985. He's still alive, and he testified. He said that's exactly the point. If you're a legislator now reviewing this, and, and, and they did mandate a a parliamentary review, and a judicial review, which will get underway in the fall after Labor Day, for exactly that reason. 
so that cabinet can't smart mouth its way out of this. If This is a big deal. If you're going to invoke the Emergencies Act and de- start declaring illegal assemblies and giving police powers to freeze bank accounts, which is what happened. And former Defense Minister Beatty testified in committee. And he said, don't tell me that the police found it useful. By the way, all the police say that it was really useful. Beatty said that's not the test when you're talking civil liberties. Of course they find it useful. That's not the point. The point is, was it the last resort? Were there any alternatives? And that's where the Fed's official story really starts to fall to pieces, which leads you to wonder, if it wasn't police that asked for it, why did cabinet do this in the first place? I think they were frightened, personally. I think there was something about these truck drivers that actually frightened cabinet, even though it was a completely nonviolent protest. That's just my two bits. Well, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's quite possible the cabinet uh, panicked and uh, decided to uh, you know go nuclear, as it were, figuratively speaking. But it'll be interesting to see if Mendocino isn't uh, the sacrificial lamb as cabinet looks for somebody to blame. I mean, they not may, they may not do it overtly, which is to get rid of it, to, to get rid of him and make him the fall guy. But they'll do it in such a way as it's interpreted as he being the fall guy. Okay, well, he's going to pay the price for a decision that I think came at the from the very top. Um, anyway, that's, that's my uh, two cents on that. Cabinet hides $240 million. Cabinet is concealing the true cost of a landmark bill that would extend official bilingualism to the private sector. The private parliamentary, or sorry, the parliamentary budget office said that this week. Actual costs were more than a quarter billion dollars. Wow, I mean, this is bad news. Uh, certainly, if it's just one more big cost that will be uh, piled on to corporate Canada, and so they're gonna have to bear that, and, and eventually it's gonna be translated into whatever cost they're going to pass on to somebody else, maybe it's, whether it's the consumers or anybody else, this is bad news, isn't it? And unnecessary. Well, sure, and, 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 and there's, you, you can understand why they would want to hide that cost. It's $240 million. This is an interesting bill. It's gotten almost no attention. I don't know why. Since 1969, it's been the law of Canada, under Official Languages Act passed by Parliament, that federal agencies, it's only government agencies, departments, Agencies and con corporations should provide service in both official languages, English and French. Well, that's fine. Everyone's fine. But cabinets discovered a problem. They've identified what they call a worrisome trend in the decline of French due to media and the Internet in particular. And so what they've done is introduced a bill that proposes for the first time ever to extend the bilingualism mandate to the private sector, specifically the federally regulated private sector, especially in areas where there is uh, a significant French presence, but they don't define that term. What does that mean? Well, you're talking banks and airports, railways. Uh, If you're an interprovincial trucking company that operates out of, say, St. Boniface, Manitoba, or Sturgeon Falls, Ontario, presumably you have to provide bilingual service. Well, now you're talking $240 million. A million here, million there, pretty soon it's real money. And cabinet withheld all this from, of all people, 
the Parliamentary Budget Office. Very strong language from the Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. He's French, by the way. And uh, he said, this, this is simply unacceptable. So you're right, yeah. How's that for inflation? A $240 million French language mandate for little mom-and-pop XYZ trucking companies. Uh, uh, incredible. It feels like a sop to Quebec. And so uh, maybe the pressure came to do that or as a way to try and appease the people in that province. We know that that's the only province really that uh, Justin Trudeau cares about. Interesting. Finds f- too few oil workers. A shortage of oil and gas workers is a big problem. That according to Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan. Wow. Let's let that ring for a minute. His remarks follow a report that Cabinet's climate change plan threatens 170,000 energy jobs. By, by federal estimate, are you spinning us here? Are you serious, is the quote in the story in Blacklocks. I mean, these people have kneecapped the oil sector, the, the oil and gas sector, the resource sector. They've done everything in their power to send billions of dollars in investment elsewhere. And now they're, they're talking about too few oil and gas workers. Well, I suspect that those workers will be heading to where the jobs are. And if they're not in Canada, <laughs> then they're going to leave. I, I, maybe uh, unpack this one for us, Tom. You know, the, the irony was noted, this was uh, Labor Minister O'Regan testifying in committee, Natural Resources Committee in the House of Commons. Uh, he, he sort of strayed from the climate change script, I think, got confused perhaps. <laughs> but, but he did go on and speak very point. In fact, he used the word poignant, the poignant uh, shortage of labor poignant. in the oil and gas industry. When his own cabinet's climate change program is estimated to kill 170,000 oil and gas jobs. This is not some conspiracy theory. That's the Commissioner of the Environment said that uh, four weeks ago. The the climate change program will kill at least 170,000 direct jobs in 50 towns and cities across the country that rely on oil and gas jobs. And so it's not obvious that those two thoughts collided in the head of the Minister of Labor. And it, it, in that case, it was a New Democrat, Charlie Angus, said, seriously, uh, what, <laughs> what, what's wrong with you? What, yeah. <laughs> what, what is it that you're not getting? But he didn't get it. It was, it was, it was sad and funny at the same time, Mark. <laughs> Bill bans government vax mandate. Uh, The federal COVID vaccine mandates should be made unlawful under a private bill, which rarely passed, mind you, but it was tabled this week uh, in the Commons. The mandates, quote the story, the mandates have been nothing more than a cruel attempt to demonize a small minority. Well, I don't have a small minority. I mean, we're talking about five to six million people here, Tom, I think. And they're absolutely unnecessary, goes on to say the quote, without any scientific basis. That according to conservative MP Pierre Polyev, sponsor of the bill. What do you make of this one? It's interesting that the bill would be necessary, and obviously it is. Uh, Polyev, we know, is running for the leadership, and this speaks to his campaign for the conservative party leadership. But there's a point here, and we have cited this in the past, 
Who says that vaccine mandates are unconstitutional? Well, interestingly, the lawyers at the Department of Health did in 1996, they actually put that in a report. It's called the 1996 Canadian National Immunization Report. You can still look that up on the internet. I don't think they've scrubbed that one yet. And it says very plainly, you can't have mandatory immunization in Canada because we have a constitution that's unconstitutional. You can't do it, but they, but they did. Beginning last November 15th, we've identified by official sources, uh, this is documented, over 2,400 civil employees for the government of Canada and about 1,600 soldiers, sailors, and aircrew who have been either suspended without pay, dismissed, reprimanded, discharged, or censured in some way because they would not show their medical status. They would not disclose their vaccine status as a condition of employment. Someday we'll get the whole figures. This is an interesting bill by a conservative leadership candidate. But there's something to this, and you and I have discussed this many times, Mark. There are federal court rulings pending. In my opinion, and of course this is an argument and there are different opinions. In my opinion, I think the Department of Health lawyers were right in 1996. I think it's unconstitutional. It's a little bit rough to cost someone's livelihood when they won't show their medical status based on a decree, not an agreement, not a, not a union contract, not a condition of employment before the fact. You're just kind of making it up. It's like saying, I don't want green-eyed people working here anymore. I need you to say that you don't have green eyes or else you're, you'll get it. That's what this policy was about. I think the uh, legal rulings on this are going to favor this private bill. That's just my opinion. Government by decree. The quote in the story is, I call, this is Polyev, I call on uh, all members of parliament to end this discrimination, Polyev told the Commons, give people back control of their own personal medical decision and their bodies by passing this bill. And when you add that within the context of the imposition of the Emergencies Act, I mean, it's amazing how draconian, how far these people have pushed things. It really is. It's just uh, it's mind-boggling that that would happen. Uh, but I want to I want to speak very quickly about the ten years of Blacklocks. You've been around for a decade, Tom. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate that. Well, uh, I think uh, the people who read Blacklocks appreciate it as well. I think you've proven that journalism can be a business, a, a viable business, a profitable business. Uh, independent journalism. I think you guys uh, deserve a major pat on the back. And so, again, uh, good on you. Uh, you know, go for another 10, another 20 years if you can. Although, that's, uh, maybe that's very gracious, on. Mark. That's very gracious. This will be the nicest conversation I have today. <laughs> <laughs>